morning. Luke chapter 10, finally got to chapter 10. Chapter 9 took a long time. When we get to chapter 10, it resembles, the beginning of 10 resembles a lot of the beginning of chapter 9. In chapter 9, the very beginning, God sent, Jesus sent out the 12 to go throughout the cities of Israel and to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's their message. Tell them the kingdom of God has come. Jesus himself is that kingdom. I am the king. I bring the kingdom. Now, in that kingdom, that kingdom... There's a huge debate out there today. People say, no, the kingdom of God has not come. It cannot be here yet. And they're right a little bit. And they're wrong a little bit. Because the kingdom of God did come with Jesus. He is our king, correct? He does reign from heaven, correct? But it's a, it's a now, not yet sort of a thing. Because we know he's coming back. When he returns, he is the king and he rules over all. It's not that he doesn't rule over all now, but that kingdom in its, all its fullness is coming. And so the Jews were told in the days, the first century, when God became flesh, he told his disciples, after he had done it for about a year and a half, you go out, disciples, now and tell everyone else the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. Our king has certainly come, and it's a little foretaste of what the king gave us, healing diseases, casting out demons, even raising the dead. Just a foretaste of what's coming in the future. And those 12 did that. And they came back and they told Jesus about their, uh, their experiences. And that's what brings us at the end of chapter 9. In chapter 10, this particular account is unique to Luke because he speaks of 70 others being sent out. Chapter 10, verse 1, now After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Now, how many of you have a translation that says 72? Well... Let's close this and be done. It's full of errors. No, of course not. Um, now I've lost my place in that little drama I gave. There it is. Uh, yeah, some Greek manuscripts of the earliest kind say 72. And some Greek manuscripts, other Greek manuscripts of the earliest kind say 70. Changes everything, doesn't it? whether 70 or 72. It's one of those things that we just don't know exactly. They're usually you compare one set of manuscripts with the other when there's a, a slip of the pen or there's a, something that's slightly different. You say, well, these are earlier. These seem better. These have this going back and forth. It's called textual criticism. Uh, and you'll see certain places in the Bible where that's there. But uh, the New American Standard Bible has 70. Uh, probably 72 is the better one, uh, but it doesn't change anything here. So I'm going with my New American Standard, and we're going with 70. Um, he appoints 70 others and sent them in pairs. So there's 35 pairs of people, 35 groups, I should say, going out preaching the gospel after the 12 had done it. And note, it says, he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now, previously, last week we looked at where Jesus sent a delegation from Capernaum where he was. He's making his way to Jerusalem, and he sent a delegation into Samaria to make some arrangements there at the, at the Motel 6. And they said, no, you're going to Jerusalem. We don't want you. So he's got other people. Don't ever imagine that Jesus is just walking with 12 men. There are also women among them, and always were. But it looks like there's a lot more people other than, than just the, the 12 and some women. 
In fact, we looked at last week, Jesus looked at three unnamed men and told them about the, or I should say warned them about the cost of discipleship. Follow me. Well, first let me go bury my dad. Well, your dad's not even dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. Well, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, I don't even have a place to sleep at night, Jesus is saying. Uh, you follow me right now if you can do that. Great. Other one says, well, I'd love to follow you, Lord, but I need to go home and say goodbye first. Nope. Don't go say goodbye. Follow now. It's now or never. And so we know there's other people following him. There's apparently 70 others, at least 70, at least 70 faithful. And he's going to send them out in pairs. It's interesting to note here in pairs. When you do things in a pair, especially when you're going to go tell people about the kingdom of God, it's good to have someone else, is it not? Have you ever gone alone and done evangelism alone? That's okay to do as well. But two, there's... There's, uh, there's support, there's comfort, there's encouragement. Uh, in fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 speaks of two being better than one. And what's better than two? But three. Uh, a, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And so Jesus sends them out in pairs. I think ministry, I think ministry is better done with, with others as opposed to just going it alone. And Jesus sees that. Sent them out in pairs. We know from Mark chapter 6, verse 7, the, the original 12. Now the 70 go out in pairs. And they're going to, to every city, and they're going to pave the way and say, Jesus is coming to town. The kingdom of God is coming. You think that the world would go fantastic? We'll make a place for him. Verse 2. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. The harvest at the end of the age, in fact, the harvest spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament is grim. Uh, it's, a, it's an ugly sight. We looked at it when we were, did our study in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, where the harvest is the end of the age, and the reaper, the grim reaper, is Jesus. And he sends out his, his angels to go out and reap and to, to do business, as it were, with unbelievers. It's taking out all the unbelievers at the end and wiping them out off the face of the earth. Taking their very lives. That's the picture here. The harvest is plentiful. In other words, there's a lot of people out there, Jesus is saying, who are going to die in their sins. They need you, 70, to go out and tell them the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of God is here. Huge harvest. There's believers in the midst of that harvest. People that don't yet believe, but who will believe. I love that about evangelism. You see, the doctrine of election in the Bible, predestination, guarantees some success in our ministry. Guarantees that some will believe. It's amazing how many people say they love the Bible and they love Jesus and they believe, but they reject the words of Jesus. They reject the words of the Apostle Paul, those whom Jesus sent regarding the, the doctrine of election. There is a harvest out there. Jesus knows there's a harvest because he knows he has people ready to hear the gospel and respond. But there's a problem. The laborers are few. Now, if you've got a, say you've got a, a field full of cotton, a field full of potatoes, a field full of carrots, and you've got to bring in all the crop and then get it to, to the market, and you've only got two people to do it, what's the problem? You need laborers. You need to bring people in and train them up. Hey, let me teach you how to, to dig these potatoes up. I, I say potatoes because my grandfather always had a potato farm of sorts, and it was, you have to go down to Anahuac, Texas. Ever been to Anahuac, Texas? You ever hear of Anahuac, Texas? Go down there and follow my grandfather in that, in that tractor and 
pick potatoes, bring up potatoes. You know, mom would say, we're going down Anahuac, pick potatoes. Oh, no, that was the worst. You didn't want to do that. She might have grown up doing that, but I grew up playing golf. She grew up doing potatoes. I grew up playing golf. Golf, potatoes. I'm going with golf. But you need workers. And workers are what bring in more potatoes quickly. Jesus is saying that with regard to a harvest. There's a harvest out there that's plentiful. And the labors are few. You know, that's why we named our church Harvest Bible Church. You're going, wow, that's amazing. You named it after this? Yes, we did, actually. It's a church meant to equip the workers, equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's a whole harvest out there. Have you noticed? There's a few unbelieving people out there in the world in which you live. It needs trained people that know Jesus Christ as God and Savior who know how to defend the gospel and go out and tell people. Amen? Hence, Harvest Bible Church. If the laborers are few, we're trying to train up more laborers to do this task. Jesus said it, the harvest is plentiful, telling the 70, the laborers are few, therefore, because they're few, therefore beseech or, or go to seek the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into his harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? You? Evangelism explosion teams? No. The Lord of the harvest is obviously Jesus. And Jesus is saying, they're out there, they're few, ask me to send more. That seems pretty simple. I love that praying to God is always about praying for something he said he's going to do already. Here's what I said I'm going to do. Now ask me to do it. That's easy. Lord, there's a great harvest out there. There's lots of unbelievers. Here's our prayer for the day. Lord, send more workers into the harvest. He told us to ask him that. It's not like you're going to get in trouble for it. So keep asking him for it. I think when Jesus tells us to do something and we do it, he's glorified in that. Labors are few, beseech the Lord of the harvest. And note again that he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one that brings them in. Don't think that there's any power inherent in you or me that brings in more people to know Jesus. We speak of the gift of evangelism. What is the gift of evangelism? Does that mean someone really brings in more people than others? I don't think so. The gift of evangelism has nothing to do with how many people come to know the Lord through your ministry. The gift of evangelism is, is how passionate you are to do it. Used to, when I was at DTS, Dallas Seminary, we had an evangelism class. And, and you had to go out. You had to go out and tell people about Jesus. You had to do six of them, write it all out. And I went, oh, no, now I have to do this. And I have to mark it up and turn it in. You know, always hide behind that. I don't need to be told what to do. I don't need to be told to do my evangelism. I'm going to do it anyway. And I, I loved all six encounters. They were incredible. My, I was going to say my hairdresser was really just a barber, glorified barber. Um, talked to her, and I figured this woman's got people talking to her all the time about certain things. Well, that day she had a guy telling her about Jesus. Had a lady at work. I told her I worked at a Christian ministry. She wasn't a Christian. I told her. I went out on the streets with my buddy in Denton, Texas, and we walked around, and we were just asking people, hey, what do you think about God? And we were blown off by a lot of people, and other people just stayed and talked to us. And I found that there's just a way, certain around, you talk to people, hey, what about this? Do you know about this? Some people drop the, you know, what church do you go to? Uh, What do you think about this or that? And you try to to lay that, uh, throw the bait out. I was at, uh, I was fishing with Barry Richards and 
the, the people next door to our cabin, their TV didn't work. So I went over there and I'm, I'm waiting for a chance to drop the bomb. And uh, uh, she, uh, they said, you know, how do y'all know each other? Because Barry's older than me and, and Wayne is older than, than both of us. So kind of a strange threesome there. And, uh, and I said, oh, we all go to the same church. You kind of wait. You know, you've, you've dropped that seed before, right? You wait for them to go, oh, you go to church? Well, there was dead silence. So I keep working on the TV. I said, yeah, 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 we go to church together. Like they didn't hear me or something. <laughs> they heard. They just didn't want to continue that conversation. Well, on a previous trip, there was a family in a, in a cabin right next to us, and Barry made the mistake of saying, yeah, we've got a reverend staying with us. And they thought they want, oh, can we see the reverend? And I said, did you tell them what I look like? He said, no, I just want to see what they do when they see you. Oh, they just were enamored with the reverend and gave us all this fish that we didn't eat. They were so nice. Uh, the point being is that on a, you go fishing in northern Arkansas on a cabin here and a cabin there. There are, there are different kinds of people. Drop the bait and wait to reel it in, Right? Now, it's not a selling of cars. It's not trying to, to show how many you've brought to Christ or notch your guitar, as the old metaphor goes. It's just a matter of recognizing wherever you go, there's unsaved people. Find a way. Maybe you like to, to drop tracks. You may have noticed that all of our business cards around here, but Harvest Bible Church, on the back, have the gospel. You know, go to, to a, a restaurant, Pray over your food. If the waiter sees you, tip 25%. I mean it. Tip more. And if you don't want to talk to them, give them a track. They're gonna, they'll look at it. They may throw it away. I was at the car wash recently down here in Cyprus, White, Whitewater. I pull my truck in to start vacuuming it out. And on the ground, there's our business card flipped gospel side up. And I knew it didn't fall out of my truck. It was just there. And I thought, how about that? I left it there. Somebody else will pick it up. There's the gospel. Someone had been there. There was our card. There's the gospel. I thought that was pretty neat. We should go littering the whole city with that stuff. <laughs> the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. He's the one of the harvest. He'll bring them in. He says in verse 3, go behold. I think those two words anticipate the trials that are coming. Go. go. It's a present imperative, meaning it's urgent. And it means always go. Don't just go once. Don't go do this once. This is a present imperative, meaning ongoing, urgency, go, and behold, or watch out, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the midst of wolves. How's a lamb going to do in the midst of wolves? Not too good. How's a human going to do in the midst of wolves? Not too good. Jesus is saying, as lambs, you are going to be in great danger. It's not a, a simple task. You're not necessarily safe Physically, Jesus promises there are no guarantees of our physical health in ministry. None. Don't ever think that if you go out in the power of God, with the Spirit of God, that He's going to protect you. He's always going to protect your soul, but you might die and get eaten by cannibals. Many have. I'm not making that up. You know the story of, of Jim Elliott through Gates of Splendor. He and his team wanted to give the gospel to a, a tribe of Indians down in South America. They made their way. They established relationships, landed their plane. They found them floating in the river with spears in them for giving the gospel. And God worked through that amazingly. Go and behold, lambs in the midst of wolves. As if that's not bad enough, verse 4, carry no money belt. That is, no extra money, no bag, no shoes, 
Back then, most people didn't have shoes. If you had a pair of shoes, that that was a bit unusual, might have put you in a little higher socioeconomic bracket, but he's saying, if you have a pair of shoes, don't take an extra pair of shoes, and greet no one on the way, which sounds kind of unfriendly. I want to tell you about Jesus, but I want to say hello. Hey, how you doing? Not talking to you. Need to tell you about Jesus. That's not what it means. So carry no money belt. By the way, this is not a modern day evangelism. This is not the way, this is not the model for the way it should be today. In fact, if you would, turn with me over to chapter 22, verse 35, and I'll show you why I say that. This is early discipleship, and it's Jesus teaching the 12 and the 70 to depend on Him, and we still should depend on them. In Luke chapter 22, verse 35, right before Jesus dies, uh, something changes, And he says, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? Or you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. Verse 36, and he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. There's protection. For I tell you that this that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And that is, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, that's enough. So he tells them later on, you've learned to depend on me. Now go out and be prepared. Have some extra money, bring some extra clothes, bring some protection. So again, this is not a model today where we, by we go out on the mission field and one day we take the clothes on our back with no money and we go somewhere and that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. In this context, these 70 are going to be sent out on a temporary mission, and Jesus is telling them, I want you to rely upon me. There's a principle there. Relying upon the Lord. He develops that. When he says greet no one on the way, uh, by the way, a greeting here would have to do with, uh, you know, it's not a, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. What's going on? How's your family? Uh, Greeting would be a, a, a stop to develop a relationship. Greeting would be what we call today friendship evangelism. You know, you make friends so that you can later give them the gospel. It's not a bad thing in and of itself, but oftentimes uh, you, if you make friends with people you're trying to share the gospel with, you, you probably won't share the gospel if you think it will jeopardize the friendship. Jesus did not tell us to go out and make friends. He told us to go out and share the gospel. Be very weary of, of the relationships you're trying to establish so that one day you can give the gospel. Jesus sent people out to just share the gospel. Doesn't mean you make, can't make friends, but he's essentially saying this is an urgent matter. Don't go getting caught up on all the greetings. Go and share the gospel. Verse 5. Whatever house you enter, so they're going to go into a town, each of these teams. You go into a town and you, you go into a house. Someone's going to welcome you in. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, if you're a Jew, what's the word for peace? What are you going to say? Shalom. Now, you and I say, if you're from the south, how you doing? Good to see you. What's up? What's going on? We say things like that. They're not necessarily meant to be answered. Some people don't know that. They don't know that a, hey, how you doing, is really just that. But that's okay. Make sure you have time to, to listen. Um, you, if you ask it again, hey, no, really, how are you doing? There, there's, there's where you get to go. Uh, this uh, particular peace has to do with God's peace. A simple shalom is not quite so sh- simple. It's about wishing 
a Jewish family, all the blessings of the promises God has given through Abraham. I wish upon you all of these blessings. All, may, God, may all of God's promises come true in your life. May everything God promised be received by you in faith. Now that's a little bit different than saying, hey, how you doing? Is it not? So to wish them peace, shalom, go into that house and wish them, I wish upon this house all the blessings of our almighty God. Verse 6, if a man of peace there, literally a son of peace, a son of peace would, would be more than just a man of peace. It's a, it's, a, it's a person who is a descendant of a household of peace. If a son of peace, if a man of peace is there, then your peace, your shalom will rest on him. I love that. To offer the peace of God, and if they receive it, if you say shalom, may all of God's blessings and promises rest upon you, and they say, and shalom to you in return, it says your peace will rest on him. Your peace coming from God's peace, shalom will rest on on him. I love that picture. If not, if not, if they don't return the shalom, then the peace you just offered to them will come back to you, will return to you. So the giving of a greeting in this regard to coming into a house and offering them God's peace was very important, vital here in the sense of receiving it back. If you got it back, then you would remain in that house and preach. If you didn't get it in return, you didn't say, okay, let me explain more to you. Let me go through an apologetics lesson for you. You would, re- you would take their rejection, God's peace would come back upon you, away from them, and you would move on elsewhere. So again, verse 6, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it, return, it will return to you. Stay in that house. That is, in the house where you were received, eating and drinking what they give you. Now, it would be interesting if it was a Gentile house who had received Jews and they're having uh, bacon and eggs that night. Jesus is saying, eat it. He's already told them that all foods are clean at this point. We see in the book of Acts how difficult that was for the Jews to, to, to get past. But uh, I'm assuming that most of the people they're going to probably all were Jewish homes. But he's saying, whatever, whatever they give you, eat it, drink it. No questions asked, just eat it. You see, the itinerant preachers of the day, it's known in the first century, went from house to house looking for the best food and the best money, the best accommodations. Jesus is essentially saying, if you find even a poor person's home, and you're sleeping on the floor on a bed of hay, and you're eating a a morsel of bread, and that's all you get, stay there. Your other team members might be in in the neighboring city. They might have found a huge home. They might be getting a wonderful meal and getting paid to go with it. Jesus is saying, wherever you go, stay there. I see a principle in ministry there. I see a principle in ministry, especially in pastoral ministry. I am where I am. Unless you decide to come together, and you you have that power within our church bylaws to come together and have a team of people come together and say, we don't want Lance anymore. And you would bring your, your complaints to our elder board, our deacon board, and I'm teaching you how to get rid of me, so... That's pretty humble, I think, <laughs> or just dumb. But you would talk to the, to the elders, elders and leaders of the church, and you would bring your concerns, and then they would come and either get rid of me or, or get rid of you. <laughs> Until that happens, 
I'm not looking for anything else. Uh, I, I see this is where God put me to be. He, he put me at this post. This is where I've been. This is where I'll remain. I'm not to look around. Now, admittedly, it's good here. You're good. I love you. The people of Harvest Bible Church are my family. Even the visitors, even the people that, that I might not know yet. We are a family of believers that come together to hear God's word and worship together. I, I, this is a dress rehearsal for heaven, is it not? I'm not looking for greener grass. I'm certain there's greener grass. There's maybe more money. There's maybe better places. But this is where God assigned me. I'm not going anywhere. What about you? You're always looking for greener grass. Men, your ministry is your family and your work and your job, where you are. You don't have to give that up to be a missionary. Ladies, your ministry is your family, your husbands, your homes. Children, your ministry is your parents. Obey your parents. Let them train you so that when you leave, you also can be a productive member of society and a light shining in a dark world with Christ flowing through you. Jesus is saying, wherever you go, stay there. Eat, drink, whatever they give you, no matter what it is. For the labor, he says, is worthy of his wages. Now, this is stated throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that someone who comes in is preaching the gospel. We, I'll put myself in that category, are not... Uh, hoping that people will pay us, uh, but we are to get our living from the gospel. Uh, Paul says it, Jesus says it right here, is the laborer in the church, the laborer in ministry is worthy of his wages. Don't you love that passage? Don't you notice that preachers love that? No, I won't go belabor that point. But that's what Jesus is saying. Stay there because you're worthy of your wages. You're worthy of the food. You don't have to say, I'm sorry, I'm eating all your food or taking all your money. You're not sorry. You're there to give them the gospel and they owe you a living. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And here we see that they're given the ability, as the twelve were, to heal. Verse 9. And heal those who are in it, who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. You'll also note down in verse 17, when they come back, they tell Jesus even the demons are subject to us. So even though Jesus doesn't state it, he gives them that same power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. So he goes to them, you're in that house, heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. You see, that's, that was the way that Jesus gave them. The avenue for the people to recognize, how do I know the kingdom of God has come upon you? Well, because these two strangers have come into your home, they've offered God's peace to you. You have a sick mother-in-law and a sick child near death. They came back and healed them for you. That's what I love. We'll get to Acts chapter 28. Paul uh, and uh, over 300 other prisoners are shipwrecked, and they all flee to this island called Malta. It's a modern island uh, out in the, where is it? That's what I was going to say, the Mediterranean, out there near Italy. Right? Okay, yeah. Anyway, they go in, and, and they heal everyone there. What a blessing Paul was on this island. Uh, the leader of the island's father had uh, uh, a bad stomach problem. Paul went and healed it. Publius, I think was his name. Jesus is saying, go into these homes. These people will know the kingdom of God has come near when you heal their people. Give them the gospel. Put your peace on that city. So that's the good part. Verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, this is not just a, thank you very much, I'm sorry you rejected the gospel. This is go out into the streets of the city 
as a lamb among wolves, this takes great boldness, and say in verse 11, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Wow. You think you're not going to get some things thrown at you along the way? Instead of just going out, you know, you go into someone's house and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with your Messiah. I don't believe in your God, and I don't think that Jesus of Nazareth is anything but a carpenter. We don't like him, and we don't like you. We don't appreciate you being here. Get out now, or things are not going to go real well for you. Let's assume that was the statement. Now you got to go out in the streets, holler at the top of your voice, and tell everyone, I'm wiping the dust off of your city in protest. Be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near you what he says at the end of verse 11 yet be sure of this that the kingdom of God has come near the kingdom of God has come near when people receive it and you also know the kingdom of God has come near when people reject it you know it well there can only be one or the other actually there's not we're going to read here before uh, that our time is over of the middle ground because there's those that hate it or I should say there's those that love it stay there There's those that hate it, go out and protest against them. We know those people. Hot, cold. Jesus says what uh, to the church in Laodicea? Uh, Some of you are hot, some of you are cold. But because you're lukewarm, right down the middle, essentially he says, you make me want to throw up. You make me want to vomit. God hates the apathetic people. Let's meet them. He says... uh, Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you in verse 12, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. You remember the story of Sodom, do you? Genesis chapter 18 and 19. In Genesis chapter 18, you've got um, uh, Abraham and Sarah. They're in their tents, and three men approach. One of them is the Lord, all caps, which means it's Yahweh. Don't often see this. Yahweh himself walking along. He has two other people with him. They're angels. We learn that they're angels in Genesis 19. The Lord himself stays with Abraham and talks to him. As he's talking to Abraham, the two angels go down into the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Actually, it's just to Sodom. Gomorrah is a sister city, just as wicked. And while the two angels go over there to meet with Abraham's nephew named Lot... Abraham is left standing there talking to God Almighty, to Yahweh himself. Abraham knows what's going to go down in Sodom. So he begins to to, uh, barter with God. And he says, look, if you can find 50 people there, will you save the city? God says, deal. Abraham knows there's not 50 down there. So he says, what if you find 45? God said, I won't destroy 45. It's kind of funny if you read the account. Abraham goes, all right, well, I'm going to roll here. Since I got away with with 50 and 45, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? Lord, don't be mad at me. What if there's only 20? Because Abraham knows there's no one down there worth saving, except perhaps Lot. But he tells Abraham, if there's 20 there, I won't destroy it. So Abraham says, Lord, one last time. I'm going to press my luck. If you just find 10 there, and God says, if we only find 10 there, we will not destroy that city. Abraham stops for some reason. He should have gone down and said, Lord, if you just find one, you know, my nephew Lot. But he doesn't. 
So we get the story in in Genesis 19 where these two angels, they look like men as the Lord God Almighty talking to Abraham looked like a man. These two, they must have been beautiful, attractive in some spiritual, otherworldly way. They go down into the city and they find Lot and his wife and their two daughters and they go into their home and there's a knock at the door. And the knock at the door is from the homosexual crazy men of the city, and they said, who are those men you let into your home, Lot? We want them. Let them out so that we can have sex with them. Yes, this is in the Bible. To which Lot says, no, please, please don't do this. Lot is offering hospitality, that ancient custom of protecting those who have come to you for protection. They won't take no for an answer. They want those men a city that has become this depraved, now we know why God has come down to visit this city. So the angels, and their, uh, with their divine powers, blind the men of the city. Tell Lot, get your, your daughters together, get your wife, get their engaged to be their, their would-be husbands, and let's get out of town. God is going to destroy this city. Well, as the story goes, uh, the two uh, would-be husbands to Lot's Uh, daughters would not respond. So it's Lot, his wife, and the two daughters. They escape the city. The wife, however, decides, do I really want to leave this place? She becomes a pillar of salt. She's gone. The point being is that God rains down fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're destroyed. In fact, their location is not even known today. The best we can ascertain from the Bible is they're right at the bottom of the Dead Sea. That's their location. The southern part of the Dead Sea, that's the location of the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they become a byword throughout the Bible for the most extreme form of wickedness, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says, for those who reject me, you go out in the city, shake the dust off your feet of those who don't want you, and tell them that the, the kingdom of God has come near, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city that rejected me through my emissaries. Jesus speaking. We're going to get another story here, but let me push this point here. here. Here's what this means, folks. We live in a day where the gospel is everywhere. Which I say, I have to say that tongue-in-cheek... Uh, um, the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years. Bible, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's everywhere. There are churches everywhere. Even people who hate Christianity know something about who Jesus is. What this means is that people today who reject Jesus, if you reject Jesus, in fact, if you're an unbeliever here today and you are hearing the gospel and you say no, your fate will be worse than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Your fate will be worse than what became a byword of the most wicked people on the planet. Sodom, then, for that city. It gets worse. Did you come for encouragement today? Verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe is an onomatopoeia. When you say it, you feel it. It means what, just this very sound it makes, woe. I, I, I feel sorry for you. I, I am so frightened for you. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's a city, by the way. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
Bethsaida, by the way, is the hometown of, of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Jesus fed 5,000 people there. We saw in, John, in Luke chapter 9 and in, uh, I believe it's Mark chapter, oof, maybe Mark, uh, Mark 8, perhaps. I, don't, I can't remember it now. He healed a blind man there in Bethsaida. Chorazin, we don't know anything about. But clearly there's more going on in the Gospels than what the Gospels record. Chorazin is just a couple of miles from Capernaum. We saw most of what Jesus did in Capernaum and a little bit about what happened in Bethsaida. But apparently there were miracles happening in these cities everywhere, every day. The people were seeing them with their own eyes. And so Jesus, because these people reject him, or I should say here are just simply apathetic to him, indifferent to him, Jesus says, woe to you. I feel sorry for you, Chorazin. I feel terribly sorry for you, Bethsaida. Note this, for if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, were pagan Gentile cities that Jews hated and were quite glad to see burn with the fires of heaven, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, it's uh, Lebanon today, um, ancient Phoenicia, uh, these two cities, if you, if you read your Old Testament, you know that Tyre, the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, uh, T-Y-R-E, yes, uh, and its sister city of Sidon uh, were among the worst of cities. You might put, picture them as a New York City. This was the place, they were coastal cities, so they were port cities, people would come in, all the immorality associated with a port city was there, but this was Amazon on fire. This was New York City and everything that happens, all the money in the world comes to Tyre and Sidon. Um, we know that uh, one of the kings of Tyre was so wicked. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet Ezekiel denounces their king as if he is Satan himself. In fact, he is looking beyond the wicked king to the one that embodies him, Satan. The Jews knew all about Tyre and Sidon. These were wretched cities. Uh, in 586 B.C., when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, the Tyrrhenians and the, and the Sidonians rejoiced and celebrated. In fact, in Amos chapter 1, we see that the city of Tyre enslaved some of the people of Israel. They hated them. So if you're a Jew and you hate those ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon, and they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy, destroy them completely. Uh, they, he destroyed the city and the people moved out onto an island off the coast of the city. Uh, and and they, they used their, all the, the garbage from the, the city and made an island out there and protected themselves uh, of some sort. Alexander the Great came along a couple hundred years later and finished them off. You can still see the ruins of that city, uh, even what's out in the, in, the, uh, in the ocean. And Jesus says this, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. So these two cities, once again, they saw the power of Jesus and the power of his disciples. Again, this is all around Jesus' hometown or, or home base, I should say, of Capernaum. His hometown is Nazareth. His home base is Capernaum. Throughout Luke, we've seen him in Capernaum. He's healed everyone. There are no sick people left in this region. They've seen him. They've heard him. 
He's like a sideshow. They're just indifference to, indifferent to him. They're completely apathetic. Yeah, yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, he does good things. We like him. He makes us well when we get sick. That attitude, folks, is worse than the attitude of the Tyrians and the Sidonians. And Jesus is saying it will be more tolerable for those two cities, which, by the way, were completely destroyed. They're left as fishing towns, nothing but a bare rock, according to Isaiah chapter 23 and Ezekiel 28. A bare rock where people fish. In other words, for those of us today who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have a Bible, who hear it preached, who know that Jesus is God in the flesh, if we just blow him off, yeah, 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 we we respect Jesus, good teacher, good guy, but I'm going to live my life on my own. I'm not going to sacrifice my life. I'm not going to deny myself, as Jesus said, and follow him. I'm going to follow me. The hottest place in hell is for you. The hottest chasm of hell is not for those Sodomites. It's not for the Tyrians and Sidonians. It's for those moral people. We might call them good people who say, no thanks, not interested in Jesus. Hottest part of hell. Do you see the dangers of being apathetic toward Jesus? Make up your mind. Either love him or hate him, but don't go down that middle road. Hang out in eternity in hell with the Tyrians and the Sidonians and the Sodomites and the Gomorites. But don't hang around with those who came to church and said, I don't want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Hottest part of hell. Verse 15, and you, Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Hades is that place. It's thought of, it's the equivalent in the Greek. It's Hades is Greek, and the, the Hebrew equivalent is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It's the place of the dead, and it was thought of by the Greeks to be the lowest place on earth. Of course, we know heaven is the highest of places. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God himself dwells in heaven in unapproachable light. He's at the highest. Hades is the lowest. Capernaum. And we don't read anything in Capernaum about the people being particularly wicked. Remember when Jesus went to Nazareth, they ran him out of town and tried to kill him. But he was welcomed in Capernaum. They loved him in Capernaum. People knew where to find him in Capernaum. We, again, we don't see anything evil going on in Capernaum, but Jesus tells this town that has somehow relegated him to some magic man, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The New Testament teaches us that in Hades, Hades is the place where the wicked dead go. So if you are not in Christ, you have rejected Christ, uh, your spirit, when you die, goes into this place called Hades. We'll see this in Luke chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 19, uh, where you go to Hades. All of those who are in Christ and prior to Christ who had the true faith in Yahweh that saved them go to be with Abraham. They're in Abraham's side in paradise. So there's two places. You die and you're at Abraham's side in paradise where God is, or you go into this place called Hades. And we know from Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, that the man that's there calls out and says, I'm in agony in this flame. 
It's hot there, which isn't quite as bad as it's going to get because we read in Revelation chapter 20 that Hades itself, this holding place, will be dumped into the eternal lake of fire after the millennial reign of Christ. Folks, I think that as you grow in your faith, you think more about hell than you do heaven. I think you think more about hell than heaven. You long for heaven. You long to be there. But hell scares you. And you know people that are going there. You know people that are already there. They're in Hades. They're crying out in torment. You think about it. You wonder, is there hope for them? And there isn't. In Dante's Inferno, if you ever had to read Dante's Inferno, what's, what does the, the sign say when you walk through the first gate of hell? You turn around, and it says what? Abandon all hope. Hope is gone. There is no hope there. I plead with you, if you are an unbeliever today and you hear this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You are a sinner. You know that you're a sinner because you know you're imperfect. In your imperfection, Christ tells you, cry out to me. I'll forgive all of your imperfections. I don't care how many you have or what you've done. You could be Adolf Hitler and cry out in the last 11th hour and ask for forgiveness, and the blood of Christ forgives. Receive him and you shall be saved. It is the only way to be saved. We are born enemies of God. When we come out, we're a cute baby to our children, but to our, our parents, I should say, but we are enemies of God. Enemies of God. I remember R.C. Sproul saying years ago, and I think he wrote a book or a pamphlet on it, he said, your enemy is not the devil. Your enemy isn't really death. Your enemy is God. He is the one we have to do business with. But God himself offered a peace treaty. He brokered it. He became a man. He lived our life and he died this death that we're supposed to die by being whipped and beaten and tortured and crucified. He took that. What do you have to do? Receive him by faith. Lord, I trust you. I know I'm a sinner. If you died for my sins, I want that forgiveness because you're not going to get it any other way. Only the perfect lamb Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. You remember John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world? Receive him. Don't be apathetic. If you will not receive him, then loathe him. But don't ride that middle ground. I can at least spare you the hottest part of hell. The worst mass-murdering atheist will have it better in his eternal place in hell than those who are apathetic toward Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. In his final bit of encouragement in this context, verse 16, Jesus says, the one who listens to you, listens to me. That means that when we speak in the name of Christ, as I am doing now in the name of Christ, speaking the words of Christ, to reject me is to reject him. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. We have a great responsibility, my friends. A great responsibility to bring the gospel. 
Did we get it from someone other than Jesus? If we get it from the Bible, we get it from Jesus. We take the gospel of Jesus. And who sent Jesus? But God the Father. When people receive our message, if it's from Jesus, if we're speaking the truth of Scripture, then they receive Jesus. And they receive God the Father who sent God the Son. But if they reject you, if they reject me, they reject Jesus and God the Father who sent him. And to do so has eternal ramifications. What are you going to do with this? What can you do? Sharing the gospel has to do not only with sharing the truth of salvation in Christ, it not only has to do with sharing the wonders of believing in Christ and the eternal benefits, it has to do with warning of what it means to reject I hear rock stars. I've heard them quoted for years. Uh, you hear certain people will say, well, if I go to heaven, I got friends there. If I go to hell, I got friends there. The old lead singer of one of a, the late lead singer of a particular rock group said and wrote a song on it. Said, hell is a place where you go and you party with your friends. If only. Well, he's there. My guess is it's not much of a party. I think of all the rock stars that are there. They're not down there making devil music, folks. I wonder what it's like. I wonder, can they walk around and see? Because eyes are a wonderful gift from God. Why would they be able to see anything? Can they hear? I'll bet they can hear. I bet they can hear the screams of their friends that are there. Can they feel? Oh, they have an eternal body that's not going to be burned up. And they will feel the pain of heat and it will go on forever, and there will be no hope of it going away. When you and I get sick, when we get cold, when we get hot, we know it's going to go away. When we get tired, we know we can get into a shower, we know we can crawl in bed, and we know it's going to be over, and there's better days ahead. We say that to better days ahead. That was the last scene the other night of Blue Bloods. I like to watch Blue Bloods. Any, any Blue Blood people in here? What they do? They held, and they talked about it to better days ahead. That's hope. That's hope. In hell, no one is holding up a glass saying to better days. Jesus Christ our Lord is God in the flesh. He came to offer a peace treaty. He is our peace. God is our enemy. Jesus brokers the peace. Believe on him. Believe in him. Trust him. And you shall be saved. Nothing else, folks. You shall be saved. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord God Almighty. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for setting us free, free from ourselves. I pray for those in there today. May they choose a side, hot or cold, nothing down the middle. Certainly, I pray that no one would leave here without receiving Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and follow you. And may those of us who are already on that road, may we do it better. May we give up even more. May you remind us of the things we're clinging to. May we follow you faithfully. In the almighty and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.